Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Global civilization is clearly on the edge of failure. What are you really afraid of? Hast thou eaten of the fruit of the tree whereof I told thee thou shouldst not eat? The moral to be drawn from this nightmare situation is a simple one. You simply have to turn your back on a culture that has gone sterile and dead and get with the program of a living world and a re-empowerment of the imagination. More than machinery, we need humanity. Fundamental changes in society are sometimes labeled impractical. Our birth, our death, our being in the moment, these are mysteries. They are doorways opening on to unimaginable vistas of self-exploration. The contemplation of death and the acceptance of death is very highly generative of creative life. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. The society is trying to cure itself by an archaic revival. What account would we give of our stewardship of the planet Earth? The world is not an unsolved problem for scientists or sociologists. The world is a living mystery. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. Don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Welcome to Death in the Garden. This podcast seeks to explore the mythologies of our time in an era of converging crises. The interviews you will hear on this podcast are from our upcoming film. We are questioning the cultural assumptions about who we are, where we came from, and where we are going. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Us again. (laughs) Um, Today, we are happy to share this podcast that we recorded a couple months ago, actually. Um, It's been a crazy past couple of months for us and finally got around to having the space to really sit down and go through this because this was a this was a conversation where we went through a lot of stuff and we cover a lot of territory. And so I think that I wasn't quite in a good mental space to tackle it. And yesterday I was like, okay, I'm ready to do it. Let's do it. And so now I want to introduce our podcast with uh, Rune Yarno Rasmussen, who some of you may have already heard of. Um, He runs the the wonderful project called Nordic Animism. And, you know, Jake, maybe you could talk a little bit about something that you think about. (laughs) Should we start over? Something that I think about. start over. Just keep going. (laughs) Just edit it. Uh, Yeah. This podcast is mostly about animism, which is a really cool thing that we've been thinking about a lot and that pops up a lot when you get involved with, I guess what I would call real environmentalism or uh, environmental spheres and books. And it can really be um, taken in kind of a cheap pop culture, childish version of animism. But I think Rune is somebody who's having very wise and experienced conversations about animism about and about what it is and it's been something that I've been wanting to explore because so much of our work is about worldviews is about trying to view the world in radically different ways in an attempt to fix the problems we have and animism represents very much this a to its core different worldview than which anybody alive especially in the modern developed world is even close to 
being able to truly understand or actualize in their own lives outside of kind of a top, you know, surface level, pulled back philosophical, almost academic approach to what animism is. Because I think animism is very much a lived philosophy. It's something that can only be actualized and understood if you are living in a way that that means you're an animist, that you, your actions and your behaviors align with as if you have calibrated your internal uh, compass to animism. Yeah, and it's like so much of what we ta have talked about recently has been, you know, the systematic sort of desacralizing of the world that kind of came down from the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and how that has impacted our ability to engage with the world as it, it being alive and full of mystery and things that really are important if we want to sort of break down why the world has become so commodified and industrialized as it is and why materialism has become the most important way of understanding the world. And, you know, the reductionist worldview is antithetical to the animistic worldview. And so this is a really cool conversation. And, you know, Rune had reached out to us specifically because he wanted to talk to us about death and violence in animism and how there is this challenge of, you know, understanding that in, in animism, if everything is alive and everything is imbued with all of the same levels of passion and experience, uh, desire to be alive, then what does it mean when we kill things? And so we have a great conversation about that and how, um, you know, as long as you're in kinship with something and you're in this reciprocal relationship, we start to, the the those barriers start to kind of come down where death is death and killing is no longer this murderous fratricide. It's more of a a way of perpetuating communities of that are all interrelated to each other. So well, and it makes the conversation around death even harder and more meaningful and deeper because I think if you if you look at death through the modern lens, you have to apply modern ethics and morals to come to any sort of conclusion or direction about how we handle death in the modern world, which often leaves it very surface level, good or bad, avoid death, all death is bad, uh, the death is the end of something. Whereas in the animist worldview, the perspective on life and death is even dip, uh, deeper and more rich. And the more I uh, attempt to see the world through an animist lens, the crazier the idea of death gets, the more intensity and meaning and um, personal uh, inner life that gets kindled when I think about death is even greater. And so it's like thinking about the world animistically doesn't even make these ideas easier or simpler to to comprehend it makes them a little bit even more complex and that's what i'm grateful for because i think so often we're devoid of the deep richness and meaning because our current perspective can't even get close to those things well and the industrial process has systematically devalued and created distance between us and animals who we once once had totemic and sacred relationships with all throughout history. And so, you know, this is all a very recent development as far as like our ability to engage with death and also engage with the beings that we are in relationship to. And so, you know, these are these are layers to this conversation that need to be broken down in order for us to really understand where we're going. Um, 
And so, yeah, it was it was a really, really great conversation. We talked about, you know, the violence of industrialization and the violence of colonialism and all of these things. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to talk about briefly before we really get into the podcast is, you know, um, we talk a bit about ecofascism in this podcast because, um, you know, talking about a Nordic traditional understanding of the self and uh, acknowledging, you know, that we are European descendant um, and that we live in a diaspora. Um, obviously, a lot of these stories and myths um, have been used, have been leveraged in a fascistic way. And one of the things that I just wanted to clarify, because I I feel that fascism is a word that is really used a bit too liberally and isn't defined properly, in my opinion. Like recently I was reading a piece by someone who I think is really intelligent and I really respect them. Um, but they were saying that like fascism is like climate denial. And um, to me, I'm like, that's very irresponsible to sort of conflate something like that. Um, a, a lot of times fascism is like the right wing in general is conflated with fascism. And from my point of view, fascism is a very specific thing and we, we ought to talk about it like that. You know, um, I had the misfortune of reading into the Buffalo Shooters manifesto um, because he identified as an eco-fascist. And I think that it's important to always recognize that fascism is the desire to create an ethnostate um, and including violence against anybody who they believe threatens that ethnostate. And so... You know, if 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 we don't think of the sort of context of blood and soil as like your you your you feel a sense of supremacy and a sense of ownership over the nation, um, but it's due to the fact that your blood is of a pure race. Like that to me is is the best way to understand fascism. And I think that if we use it flippantly, we start to denude what it actually means and. When that happens, then it becomes harder to actually point out who is actually fascist. And the way that ecofascism, to my understanding, is expressed is through, you know, the the belief in overpopulation um, and that uh, people of color are going to be um, there. They, they have a higher birth rate and they're going to be supplanting the white race. And it's this whole great replacement theory kind of ideology. But the point of view is to like exterminate and eradicate mm -hmm. anybody who would threaten the white race and so like these are very specific terms and i just want to make sure that that's very clear that i'm not using that term yeah. it's i'm using it i'm not using it loosely like and I, and I think our audience you guys know you know it's it's so hard to there's it there's a deep desire from us and so many people listening to this and in the world to want to connect to ancestry and therefore a culture and, you know, cultures and the mythologies that come out of culture, culture are so place based. And so wanting to understand where our ancestors came from, wanting to connect with Nordic ancestry, European ancestry, I think for many people is a deep longing for want to want to be informed on how to be in the world from a place. You know, mythologies that come from an area are informed by the local flora, fauna, ecology, altitude, moisture levels. It's it shapes your environment, shapes your world. And I think we're so dislocated from place or we live in toxic environments that we don't have 
stories and mythologies and ancestry and practices to how to be in the world. One thing we love when we go to Scandinavia is the Folkhögskola, where you can literally go take like boat making, like old schooly boat making classes, because that's how you make a boat for these types of waters from this type of wood that grows in this place with the available resources. And that type of knowledge and connection and experience is, I think, what we're all longing for. And as Marin is pointing out, you know, unfortunately, for certain demographics, that is related with, I mean, in, in many ways, rightly so with fascism and this lo- this search for this thing that gets so conflated with um, this purity complex gets conflated with, for some of us, a good intention. Um, and to not look, we're, you know, nobody's looking for superiority or purity. Mm-hmm. It's just looking for a meaning. It's looking way to connect ourselves with time and place. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're getting at here. And I think Rune is a very good articulator of said thing and I please go watch his videos because he's really awesome to listen and just rant he picks a topic and he just goes off and he's eloquent and I think he has a beautiful voice I love listening to him well and we also talk about you know like the one of the antidotes to sort of like a fascistic leaning society like if if this is if this is sort of the direction that like certain people are wanting the world to go um, you know, is like the the value of cultural exchange. And like we talk about the difference between cultural exchange and cultural appropriation. But like the value of cultural exchange is, I think, part of helping people f- belong to the world and belong to place. Because another thing we talk about in this podcast, I mean, and, and honestly, like part of the reason why it was hard for me to want to dive back into this is because it was a kind of a hard conversation because I was asking questions that, you know, people could misconstrue if they wanted to. Um, and they could maybe misunderstand what I was asking for. And but these are questions that I think are really important. And I think that they are they undergird a lot of what uh, we're all talking about. But, you know, we talk about how you can't when you when you are descendants of settlers, you can't disentangle the fact that your ancestors per- perpetuated a story that genocided people and took over land and colonized a place. And. I think that that's something that all Euro-Americans, white Americans, white Australians, white South Africans, like there's there's these histories that we have to contend with. Yet at the same time, we also have to figure out like how to belong here, because I have this sense that part of the reason why it was so easy for the American settlers to just destroy this place is because they viewed it as something that wasn't their homeland. It wasn't the motherland. It was yeah. a foreign a foreign place. It was an alien place. It was a place they were told directly to pillage. Yeah. It was the right to pillage this place and they didn't have to take care of it. Exactly. And then that ideology has swept through the world as far as I'm as as far as my knowledge at this time tells me. That's that's my understanding of so much of the colonial story. Um, is is the the creation of this plantation based system that spread throughout the world, but it was really, you know, the the commercial revolution and the way that we were doing things in the United States, and obviously, you know, this was all of the 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 um, the, the motherland countries were part of this: the English, the Dutch, the the Portuguese, the Spanish. But like, there was a there was an ideology that was cemented at that time, and I think that um, one of the ways that we have to figure out how to heal it. Is to figure out how to belong in America, and um, and belong, and I, I, as you know, Rune says, belong in Turtle Island, and I don't claim to have the right to necessarily belong here yet, but I think that there is a 
these are important conversations to start having in order for us to figure out like how do how how do we deal with so many of these complexity these complex histories whether it's slavery or the genocide of the indigenous people here like we have to talk about it and we have to figure out how to deal with it and so i wanted to talk about it with rune because you know he offers so much knowledge and a connection to the heritage that my people would have come from and if I can tap into the goodness of the people that I came in came from, then perhaps maybe I don't have to feel like being descendant of a settler of settlers here in today, and what I desire to do with my life in this world is a, is a blight, or like I don't belong here, or I don't belong anywhere in the world. And so, and ultimately, an animistic worldview is something that can bring basically everybody together. Because if you go back far enough, everybody everybody's ancestors were probably animistic at some point and then directly forced out of an animist worldview for the current dominant culture. So if you go back far enough to most sustainable, well-mannered cultures, not all of them, obviously, there was an animistic worldview. And so if there could potentially be some medicine or remedy here for the culture at large, it's an animistic worldview. It's seeing everything is imbued with the same touch of uh, creation as you are and that you have a responsibility for every rock and drop of water and animal mm -hmm. and everything you take and everything you touch and you have a deep 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 meaningful connection to the planet the thing that gives you life and this experience i think that's at the, what's at the core of animism and mm -hmm. i think ruin will expand on that more but mm -hmm. that is the medicine we need it's not techno fixes it's not giving rise to the next intelligence um it's Acknowledging the intelligence that is all around us, mm -hmm. everywhere, and giving ourselves to that, and and protecting it, and and um, not in a namby pamby part of a way, but being part of it, mm -hmm. being one with it, recognizing its kinship with everything. And I think that's a very long road for a modern person to walk out and actually uh, embody that. Maybe impossible, but it's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, and you know that's part of why death in the garden is what it is is because we recognized very very early on that if we want to start engaging with the landscape if we want to start engaging with the world we you can't just say that i feel connected to nature or that i'm connected to nature or go outside and spend time in nature and still not be a part of this reciprocal relationship between you and the ecology and in order to do that you have to contend with life and death and so that was very very early on we recognized like that there was a hurdle um that it's 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 not it's not enough to just talk about these things um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that we're out of alignment as far as how we live just because we're doing the project, trying to talk about these ideas. Um, but we recognize that uh, in order to actually embody these ideals that we're talking about, um, you know, our, a lot of aspects of our lives have to change, too. But the idea is to move towards that, to move towards more connection. And um, one of the things we talk about in this podcast, too, is also the the myth of the Ragnarok and which is essentially the apocalypse that was created, that was started because of a lack of connection. And um, I think that it would be undeniable to not feel that something like that similar is happening. Um, we also talk about the year of Aun, who uh, Aun was a king who uh, ate all of his children to basically like ensure immortality for himself. And uh, Rune talks about how this is, this is a sort of a Nordic version of maybe like the myth of Windigo. Um, and 
also it's to me it's it's very similar to the myth of Saturn or Kronos uh, who ate all of his children uh, to avoid patricide um, and so you know I, I think one of the things that we find important is talking about myths too and what what do what do these stories from the past have to teach us today um, and and so yeah that was a long-winded way of explaining uh, yeah all of the things we talked about but um, it's but so we'll get to this podcast soon. We won't take too much more time, but just a little bit of housekeeping and a reminder that if you like this podcast and you want to help support us in any way, there's many ways to do that. First of all, if you can give us a rating on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe to us on those platforms, that's huge. These stupid algorithms and the SEO dominate our lives in a little bit. We have to play that game a little bit. So please do that if you can and if you haven't, because that's actually huge. If you can also, a little bit of financial help goes a long way. Our website has links and stuff like that. I'm sure you already pay for all sorts of stuff, so you don't want to, and that is okay. Other than that, any other housekeeping? We, we've got some good Substack pieces that we're working on right now. Um, I have like ideas sort of of a book that would be like a primer to Death in the Garden, the book. I'm writing five books right now. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm just trying to get my thoughts in order. Um, I've just, you know, a lot to say, and I've been getting a lot of really wonderful feedback that like I should say the things that I have to say. And so <laughs> I'm just trying to kind of lean into that responsibility with some, you know, it's, it's very humbling to get that sort of feedback. And so, um, so yeah, just we're just continuing to work on things. We're continuing to work on the film. And so thank you so much for listening and for your attention and all of the support that you already give us. Much love, and you'll hear from us soon. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us today. It really is an honor. It's really wonderful what you're doing. Um, we are really grateful to be able to share the ideas that you're tra- that you're promoting with your uh, project Nordic Animism, and we think that it's really special and important to remind the world that there is a there is heritages that know what it's like to be in right relationship with the world from all backgrounds. All people have that back in their history. And you're doing a really great job of educating people and bringing that into the forefront and bringing that into modern times. And so I just want to thank you for that. But maybe if you would like to begin um, in your own words, just describing who you are and how you've got to this place that you're at, where you are running this wonderful project called Nordic Animism, and you're really being a mouthpiece for these ideas, pu- pushing these ideas in this w- worldview and way of life out into the world. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you very much for all those kind words. Words, it's, it's super nice to, <laughs> it's super nice that uh, that my perspective resonates like that. Um, yeah, I'm a historian of religion, uh, and uh, uh, during my education, I became interested in. Uh, in anthropology, I started working uh, particularly with learning from, you could say, Afro-diasporic religions, like the kinds of religions that enslaved Africans have built on the west side of the Atlantic, like Sandaria and Voodoo. And I worked specifically on a, a form of that, which they have in, in Brazil called Candomblé. Um, but then through my education, I had also worked on on uh, ancestral North European uh, religion, like Nordic religion, a little bit as a sidetrack. Um, 
uh, I got a little bit disillusioned on that at, early on in my <laughs> in my uh, education because it's so far away and that makes it difficult to study. And uh, I was like, nah, I want to I want to study something that's real, something that's going going on now, something you can uh, participate in and see and feel and touch, and not something that you study in a manuscript in a. Um, so yeah, so that that's my background. I uh, I'm from southern Scandinavia, from Denmark, and. Uh, grew up in a little farm <laughs> in the countryside and um yeah then going actually from my as i was working with with uh afrodiasporic religion um i realized that uh what people for instance in Candomblé or santeria what they are doing is that they are they are developing ways of shielding and uh, recovering and transmitting their own traditional knowledge forms on the conditions of the modern world. Uh, and that particular piece in what they do, I found that very inspiring. And I thought, basically thought, well, there's no reason that other people shouldn't be able to do something similar, which other people, many different peoples are, of course, doing that in many different ways. Uh, I just got my initial sort of spark of of uh, inspiration from these uh, Afro-Brazilians. So, uh, and like, if, if, if you look at my channel, in many ways, when I'm talking about Nordic culture, uh, you could say, it's not necessarily visible all the time because it's it's not like the content of Afro-Brazilian religion. It's more like their methodology as Afro-Americans Afro in keeping their maintaining contact with uh, or keeping live their traditional culture. It's their methodology that 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 really has a capacity. And I'm sort of trying to to uh, basically take that toolbox and just slam it on our own cultural uh, background as Eurocentric people who, uh, who also have uh, an, an, a, a beautiful and sometimes overlooked animist heritage. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much, I guess that's my background. <laughs> Yeah, Great. well, well, and maybe you could talk a little bit about to the specifically the role of your project being around bringing ecological mindedness and sustain and and promoting a, a certain so, sort of sustainability. And how how does sustainability and animism relate for you? Yeah, um, well, it's a big thing, isn't it? These days, uh, there's. Uh, a report from an Australian agency recently that observed that, let's see if I remember the numbers right here, that 80% of the world's biodiversity is on indigenous lands. And indigenous pools are only 5% of the world's population. Now that is an extremely striking number. In fact, I, I sat down, I calculated it. That means that if you have an indigenous and a non-indigenous person, then there will be 76 times more biodiversity under the care of the indigenous person than under the care of the non-indigenous person. Or you could also say that we are, as non-indigenous people, we are 60 six, 76 times more detrimental to biodiversity around us than indigenous peoples. And since we live in a completely 
collapsing uh, of biodiversity and also climate uh, Armageddon, which is kind of accelerating towards us. As we're recording this, it's just a couple of days ago that yet another UN IPCC report came came out that basically still exponentially amps up the warning lamps uh, of how fucked we are, basically. And so, so anyway, if, if, if thinking about these ninety-five percent of the world's population that that we can we can pull them in that direction. Imagine we can make 95% of the world's population 76 times less uh, destructive to the world if we made all of us or opened paths for all of us to start thinking like indigenous peoples. So, of course, being indigenous is many things and, and, and things, and it's inscribed in tradition and in, in, in all kinds of relations, and there are many aspects to it. Uh, but one aspect, which is, I think, really important, is animism. Because animism means that you engage the world around us as uh, a community of, of persons. And when and sometimes even relation as, as, as a community of kin sometimes. Sometimes you are in totemic kinship group with others in the land around you. Now, it would make a lot of sense that that particular idea is part of the defining um, um, basis that indigenous people are so incredibly much better for the world than non-indigenous peoples, right? So... Basically, yeah, okay, so that was a little bit long. My point is just animism looks like it is really a very, very strong positive predictor of not being omnicidically, apocalyptically destructive to the world around us. Maybe you could describe to us, because I feel like our audience in Marin and I definitely have a framing for what at least we probably think animism is and how to identify it and how to think about it. Maybe you could kind of walk us through your own visualization of what is animism, because it seems you've come to this place where identifying cultural mythologies and epistemologies is probably a better way of approaching the catastrophe we see happening. And so that's what I love about your conversations around animism is it's trying to get to this keystone issue within a culture. So maybe walk us through how you visualize and structure animism. Cool. Yeah. I maybe I should have done that first, but yeah, animism um, in old school sort of Eurocentric thinking. They used to think about animism as the idea that everything is sort of animate, but that is a weirdly fluffy, non-specific, and quite imprecise idea. It's a little bit like describing I don't know theoretical physicists physics by saying there is energy in the world or something like that you know you know it, it it's that unspecific um and in 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 the, in the uh, sort of conservative uh, eurocentric perspective that was considered or animism was considered something childish now animism is of course very much the opposite of childish that doesn't mean that children don't have can't say animist things like naughty chair if it you know hits itself on a chair and that in a sense it ascribes the chair personhood 
but uh, but 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 animism is something that you you learn uh, through very prolonged processes, uh, and uh, and yeah. So 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 what people would today, how people would today define animism is that they would say that the world is filled with persons. Some of these persons are human, but they all deserve respect. This definition comes from this wonderful British scholar called Graham Harvey, who sort of has this definition of animism. I would then tend to add, and I haven't kind of put that in a definition formula that yet, but I would wish to add um, that there has to be a practice, a reciprocal practice somehow in there. Um, and I got that partly from a Norwegian philosopher called Arne Johan Vetlesen, who um, uh, talks about the philosophical idea that there is consciousness all over reality. And he then says animism, and, and he calls that panpsychism. And he then says pan, pan, animism is panpsychism in practice. And I think that's very true. That there, there has to be some sort of engagement uh, for it to really be animism. It's not really animism when you're just shouting a few printer that dysfunctions, you know, one and a half hour before your deadline, uh, even though that kind of in some way ascribes personhood to the printer or subjectivity to the printer. It's not really animism. I think it would be animism if you went on a shamanic otherworldly journey to recover the soul of the printer to get it back into the as a little bit of a silly example because no actually that's a bad example but uh, but you get what i'm saying you know it's it's, just, it's not animism when a journalist write in in a newspaper that an economic crisis attacks the american bank system as if the economic crisis is an entity that can decide to attack something. And it, 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 to me, that's not enough to make it ans uh, uh, animism. So that, so I would say, yeah, persons around us, some of them are not human, and we are respectfully engaging them in practice. Yeah. And, and yeah. It, you know, this makes me, as you're talking, it makes me think of this. Um, we spoke to a eco philosopher author named Derek Jensen, and one of the things that he said, and this is sort of like what I want to say to lead into this question that we sort of first became connected on is like um, the role of death and violence and animism. Obviously, our project is centered around death. It's centered around the killing and how how that relates to life on Earth. Um, but one of the things that he said to us that has always sort of stuck with me is that if you, that it's not that you don't kill when you're in these relationships, when you have these kinship bonds. It doesn't mean that you don't kill because life is eating itself all the time. But what it means is that if you take the life of another being, you are responsible for the continuation of the rest of its community, of the rest of the beings that support the matrix of life that you just took from. And so, you know, one of the things that we'd really like to discuss with you is what is the relationship from with the loss of animism and the loss of these sort of um, the sort of awareness of our relationality with the rest of the living world that has one, you know, gotten us into this place of ecocidal, you know, nightmare territory that we're all going to have to be facing in the rest of our lives. But also 
the role of death in all of that and how we've become so separated from it that we no longer sort of have this reciprocity that you're talking about. We don't have the continuation of another's community when we kill things or we consume things that were once alive. Yeah, I think I think you guys uh, are really onto something, you know, with with your idea of using food and death as as, uh, as a path into these issues. I think it is a perhaps for some it would appear weirdly over specific, but I think it's a really really well chosen thread into these questions because it's actually extremely central. There are organisms in this world that give us life. It's that simple. And they give us life. Well, maybe it's not that simple. It's like that. <laughs> uh, and they give us life by us eating them. And when you look at human humans all over the world, you see that that there is almost divinity in that. They give us life, you know? And that divinity uh, or... or uh, Deep relating, you could also say that is found among Maya in Guatemala, for whom the maize is divine. You know, you find the same in in northern Germany, southern southern Scandinavia, around the rye. The rye is an extremely important organism that give us life. So when it's harvested, it is people form corn dollies, basically corn deities, out of it and dance around them and 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 have celebrate this organ, the divinity of that organism. Um, you find the same with, with uh, hunter peoples. You will often see that there are, uh, that uh, in, uh, if if I remember correctly, um, Native Americans of the Great Plains groups, for them, the buffalo that gives them a lot of their life is a divine being or it has divine aspects to it. So, uh, and... Of course, death is inscribed in this because these beings have to die for us to live somehow. It's almost Christ-like. The buffalo dies for for us to eat it. And uh, and that death is something that animism, uh, that animists uh, often struggle with. It's it's um it's not it's not easy. And perhaps it's not supposed to be easy. Uh, one particular uh, song that I really love, I think it's my favorite of all sort of Nordic animist uh, expression or one of them, uh, is the English hymn to the, for the death of the barley, the death and suffer, suffering of the barley. It's called John Barleycorn. And it's it, uh, the singer is basically narrating and having this, uh, what is it called in English now? A litany, a song of mourning over all that suffering that the barley has to go through in the process of, uh, of becoming uh, of being sown and and ripening and harvested and made into beer. Now, beer in Northern Europe has had a role similar to what tobacco has for some North Americans, uh, Native Native Americans, that it, it it's kind of the the essential binding force of or vessel the vessel of connectivity. So, uh, this whole sort of um litany this mourning over the 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 suffering of the barley then leads to the divine animus 
kind of the vessel of animacy as connected in the beer, which is uh, as embodied in the beer that makes the whole world turn around, basically. So, uh, and I think this, uh, and this is similar to, you know, any Inuit hunter who has killed a seal will speak to the uh, Inua, the subject uh, of the seal or the soul of the seal, and say, we didn't do this uh, because we want war with the seals. Most definitely not. We are good and gentle, kind and respectful people in our settlement, and we would very much like you to come back and feed our children again, and we thank you and apologize for the violence that we've done to you. Now, this is animist grappling, actually, with the problem of death. Uh, and this problem of death is, of course, enforced by stuff like kinship. If you experience yourself in kinship or in relation with beings around around you, then killing them becomes almost like fratricide, right? It becomes really problematic. So, and I think that that particular point there, that is, the it's like the key um, formulation of the animist understanding of basically the problem of life that we that we kill to live, and sometimes you 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 see this expressed expressed in um, in myths of creation. Sometimes the myth of creation is the murder of uh, some being of sorts. You find this in pre-Christian Nordic uh, uh, creation stories, but also in others. So the um, uh, yeah, so the the the, the Death and the, the the entanglement of death and life are, I think, absolutely central. And yeah, stop me if I'm blathering too much. No, like, go on. Uh, the the um, then what happens? I think with industrialization and modernity is that we stop actually respecting those those beings that we that we kill to live from, right? We And that results in an absolute exponential growth or explosion of violence on these beings. Like I'm from Denmark, a fairly small country with around six, uh, six million people. We kill 30 million pigs for slaughter annually, 30 million to six to a population of six million, we're we're pork meat producing uh, country, right? It, it, and and the, the the conditions under which these these beings, uh, these pigs live, are atrocious. They're absolutely atrocious. They they are being uh, sprayed with antibiotics, and uh, so that the, the the sores that they get from lying in in iron bars don't fester, uh, but can just remain. It's fairly disgusting, and extremely disrespectful to those beings. Now that treatment of these beings, actually, this is actually uh, an animal that historically has played an important role as a totemic relation. Uh, pigs and boars are a very common, actually, name in uh, um, kind of nobility kind of families. 
often there's, there's a pig in their crest or they will be called boar or fun boar or something like that, you know? Uh, and you see this all the way back to the, the heathen, uh, heathen pre-Christian traditions that th this is an important animal. There used to be like a sacred uh, boar, a sacred uh, pig in in a, in a village, and people would, in, in specific times of year, people would bring a little bit of fodder from all the different farms to give it, give give to this one. Or Freya, the pre-Christian goddess of love, one of her names is actually Seer, which means in Old Norse it means the sow. Now, can you imagine a more ugly word to put on a, uh, on, a, on a woman than to call her sow? It's an extremely ugly word. So there's an extreme devalorization of this particular animal that, uh, that, uh, con that, that basically connects with this, this very, very strong, uh, this very strong increase in the violence against uh, against exactly these animals. You see what I'm saying? So the Absolutely. kinship is being on the mind. You know, as you were talking, I was just something that we thought about so much is how convenient it is for the modern mind and the modern economy and the modern uh, belief systems to not see the rest of the living community as having at least some form of consciousness and awareness and selfhood and to not... And I mean that not only for the pigs in the factory farm system of animals, but for all life. I mean, this story about the barley, this song about the barley is actually very moving to me because I, w I used to be a, a vegan, and I'm sure anybody who's listening to this is tired of me bringing that up. But it's a very important reference for myself because it was very convenient for me to eat various foods and think of it as just kind of plant matter. It's like... Uh, like a biological machine that didn't really know what was happening. And the more I read and the more I engage myself with nature, even scientifically, it's becoming harder and, and less tenable to argue that all life doesn't have consciousness and that when you begin to see the rest of the entire universe as potentially all being consciousness on some level, it makes life a lot at first, trickier and morally complex, but it enriches your life and makes your morality deep and rewarding, and it really does affect slowly your life choices if you do have such a, a world uh, worldview. There is no black and white decisions in life. There's context, and there's the whole of your life and the people around you's life as you choose how to eat and how you choose to be in the, choose to be in this world and how we choose to address climate change. It completely radically alters how we have to to approach these things. And so I don't know if that sparked anything within you, but, you know, do you find it hard to communicate this level of depth about animism to somebody so immersed in the modern mindset? Is it even a possible thing to flip that perspective? Um, well, I think we have to try. Uh, and I think that in a sense... There is a sense in which animism is a self-evident um, potential in humanity, and that's why we sometimes shout of our of our printer, the, and why children sometimes say naughty chair. Uh, it's there somehow, and it's also it is 
um, it's sort of in its nature, it is relational. That means that the stories of animism and the practice of animism uh, have an incredible resilience. And you sometimes see that, for instance, in 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 the the way that, for instance, Christianity has perhaps been implemented in an, in an area, then you see that animism has its, this tendency to sort of move a little bit like traditional West African religions has had an incredible resilience in Cuba. Uh, and so these, so, so I think, I think it's a possibility. And I think that today we see an incredible, almost like awakening, almost an, an, a, a global animist revival of sorts that, that we're seeing today. And I think it can be addressed in many different ways. Like, um, I eat meat myself, uh, and uh, I struggle with it a little bit. Uh, I, I try to, I try to, uh, for instance, uh, buy meat that has um, a Scandinavian stamp of ecology and of animal protection rights. Uh, th there will be different stamps on it, but I'm also a little bit like, is that really enough? You know, I'm not, I, I actually don't think it is. Uh, my ideal would be to live a flex, like a flexitarian and then eat meat if it had been killed like the buffalo in your first uh, program there that I heard where somebody's actually having these animals in a, in, in a, or if somebody had hunted it, or if I'd had it myself on my farm and, and, and killed it myself or somebody I know knew, I mean, that, that would be my ideal. So that, that, uh, uh, that that there was a uh, a minimal uh or a, a minimal certainty of a of a respect level um but it's difficult to live by but i but and but i and i think that that difficulty is important and it, it's probably also the reason that that stuff like veganism makes sense to a lot of people uh but i also think that as you say that there is a or as, as perhaps you implied that there's that modernity and the idea of the exterior world as uh, non-subjective probably plays a role in, for instance, uh, vegetarianism and veganism being the, the logical choice for many. Um, so, so yeah, like I'm myself a little bit unresolved actually, <laughs> actually in how I myself handle this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a super hard one. The topic of meat in the modern era, especially if you don't have access to it. I mean, I get it, you know, I've, uh, I, cause I was vegan for a very long time. I went down that rabbit hole and I, I still, I think the intentions, anybody wants to go vegan are good. I mean, those intentions and your reaction to the horrors of what we do to animals is, is anybody has that I think is super, super justified. And I think depending on where you live in the world, the context is so crazy and different. We're very fortunate because we live in the, the Western United States. This is this is cattle country. So it's really easy actually to find local farmers who are like doing it right and butchering it themselves and it's clean awesome. and it's healthy, happy animals. So we're very lucky on that front, but there's a lot of people who don't have that luxury. And, and you know, it's a, when you are an aware person and you're thinking about these things, it's hard to find that line for yourself. Yeah, and you know, on top of that too, there's an entire system that is really set up to separate us from from nature and from so you know the the death of the bison from our first episode um you know that's that's not a regularity because of illegality you know and so that's but that's something that i think that there's a resurgence happening or a, a surgence happening 
really globally from our experience of having field harvests, field slaughters that are imbued with reverence and respect. And it's about, you know, respecting that animal and it's about mercy and giving back to the land. Um, and, you know, one of the, the the video that you had sent us about uh, sacrifice and the role of sacrifice in um, ha- having an imbued sense of responsibility and meaning in the world. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was the, the, the quality of mercy. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we want to impart to our audience, of course, is that, you know, it, it's the, the, the way the factory farm system is obviously not a merciful system. Um, but unfortunately, also the USDA system in the United States and, you know, the, the which has sort of been exported throughout the world similarly is this industrialization of meat production. Um, it's not merciful when you have to you have to send these animals to a slaughterhouse that's maybe hours away and they're in this, you know, fluorescent lit, really, really unfamiliar place. Um, but, you know, I had the privilege of slaughtering a sheep in Sweden in the in Ura and it was the it was the, one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had and it was you know I butchered it with my friend and we we you know we broke it down and it was a really wonderful experience and I think that's why for us um connecting with that and connecting with the mercy of how quick and painless death can be um as a foil to what I think we all are have become really accustomed to is this that death is this thing that happens in a realm that we don't touch and that we don't we don't have any relationship to, which then has this desacralization. Um, and then we have the ability to desacralize the plants that we eat as well. And so, you know, it's it's very complex. It's it's very complex. And there are forces that are making it continue to be desacralized as well. Um, but yeah, if there's anything that you know, that's making you think of, like, feel free to chime in or we can, you know, move on. But, um, no, let me like, I think that, I think that, uh, what you're saying, the, the basic rupture is also connected. Like, I think that's connected to the whole chain of, for instance, consumption. Like when we buy something in a supermarket, there's so many links of ruptured connection between us and the land that birthed that meat and all the way to the 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 supermarket clerk who's perhaps in an in an employment exploitation situation uh th- there's rupture and, and and that rupture enables a lot of a- a- abuse and uh yeah i had some thoughts from what you said but then I'm, they they slipped me so maybe we should just move on <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well, there was there was something that stuck with me as we were listening to your videos and you articulated it very well. You said something along the lines and forgive me for butchering this, that when the Europeans came to North America or many of the places they colonized around the world, what they reported they found was a bunch of untouched nature. But what they really found was landscapes after thousands of generations, hundreds of generations of animistic um partnerships with that land, something along those lines. Maybe you could speak on what is it, you know, what are you trying to uh, communicate there? Because I think that's such a beautiful point. Yeah, like an important part of colonization has been the idea that if you're sedentary and if you are a growing agrarian, then you have some sort of ownership uh, that has to be sort of respected. 
right? That has been sort of a European idea. So that then meant that <laughs> when uh, when Europeans were moving around in colonized uh, places, they tend to say, well, these people aren't sedentary and they certainly are not growing anything, uh, which is in fact in, in some ways today is increasingly realized that it might not have been the case and that ways of, for instance, relating with plants or getting uh, life out of plants, it doesn't actually be, have to be sowing a field with rye or barley and then harvesting it. There are many different layers of, or many different kinds of, of um, grooming lands in order to be able to eat plants. Uh, so, and that's has, those relatings to land has so many forms. Like, um, you could say that part of the problem of animism or claiming animism as a as a path to sustain sustainability is that uh, some archaeologists or paleoarchaeologists or whatever they're called say that the ice age fauna disappeared on every single continent at exactly the same time as you start finding little arrowheads and fireplaces <laughs> and um, uh, and that might B, but the thing is that animism is uh, is a very dynamic way of realizing interaction, uh, acting with the world. And I actually think that there might be aspects in some kinds of animism that perhaps basically re seem to be reacting to that problem almost. So in, in uh, for instance, uh, Aboriginal Australian animisms, you have behaviors that connect with the land in ways that actually imitate the impact of some of that megafauna, fauna, like burning lands in specific cycles and so on. So uh, um, so these kinds of, of uh, behaviors, something, or these kinds of this kind of land management is something that has been traditionally been completely overlooked by colonial observers as part of basically reducing these indigenous populations to almost like animals that were just like running around in the bushes and uh, and and where in actual fact uh, we have very advanced knowledge systems of caretaking for for the land uh, and and I think that that like this some people could probably find similar stuff in in your your descendant heritage there's a guy in holland called michel grobe who's um he's a he's a frisian uh, he belongs to a very old uh ethnic group in in the northern part of holland and he is basically uh he's a biologist so he's studying uh, also archaeologically the ways that uh, land management has been taking uh, performed in that part of the world, and he finds stuff like specific cycles of burning uh, heaths, specific landscapes, which then uh, have a beneficial impact on the entire biodiversity of that ecosystem. Um, and so, uh, and I think today these these ways of thinking should be ought to be merged with contemporary science probably uh you have stuff like regenerative farming that's going on today um that is a way of farming which in some ways is completely new stuff like plowing turning the earth has been fundamental for 
perhaps 4,000 years or longer in the ways that people have been farming uh, the lands here in Northern Europe. But those impacts on on the uh, on the soil the destructive uh, effect on the mycelium and the release of uh, co2 and all these things that wasn't a problem in the flippant stone age where where a plow was a stick that went into the ground that was pulled by two oxen right today a plow has like 20 huge blades that that go uh, one and a half meter down into the ground right so so uh when we are starting to think with uh, stuff like regenerative farming, um, we are bringing something in a sense that's very new, but which I think can be brought into relation also with traditional ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's something that, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be able to see a lot of those implementations. And, you know, I think that from our point of view, it's like it those the – the contextual animistic knowledges have to be blended in order to really be able to approach the landscape that you're working on with reverence. And luckily, we've been really fortunate to to see so many examples of this. Um, But, you know, I, I, I wanted to talk about something that you you had talked about in one of your videos, which is essentially this idea that sort of reinforces the idea of European exceptionalism um, when we think about blending indigenous knowledges. Um, often uh, people like the Sami are left out or or uh, a Nordic uh, or a European traditional ecological knowledges are left out of the conversation. And you said a lot of really interesting things about that and how that sort of reinforces these divisions in our society that are reinforcing racist tendencies. Um, you know, and one of the things that we've been talking about recently is like we our, our last podcast, we sort of discussed the Proud Boys and how there is this sort of rise in things like eco-fascism. And I would just be curious if we can maybe like talk a little bit about that, about how how are how is what you're talking about maybe being weaponized, but also being very, very misunderstood and not used enough. You, you talked about this this two-sided battlefront of like the eco-fascists on one side like need to be challenged, of course, um, but on the other side, uh, European traditional ecological knowledge needs to be embraced and be part of the conversation as well. So maybe you could kind of discuss that a little bit. Yeah, these are incredibly important and difficult matters, uh, but they're also ubiquitous you ubiquitous ubiquitous that thing <laughs> um, it, i see it a little bit as some sort of mirror to or relating to the uh, ubiquitous nature of being racialized if you belong to a marginal marginal racialized group if you're black uh, you can't just decide Okay, so today I'm not going to deal with racism. I'm just going to be a person and be interested in climate change, and there won't be anything. There won't be any racism around me, right? Now, uh, that decision is not there. It's not available. In a related, perhaps mirroring way, if you are approaching your traditional knowledge and culture, you are approaching stuff that has been entangled in history of colonialism and racism and you and, and you can never really turn your back to it that's why the path to 
recover your traditional ways of knowing is essentially in, it's like it cannot be done without active intersectional struggle um in 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 questions such as anti-racism it simply cannot be done uh, because uh what has happened historically is that motifs culture practice has been sometimes identified with for instance militant kinds of whiteness so uh like I remember seeing at the Charlottesville uh, marches, you saw people with flags that had Thor's hammers on it. Like, I carried, a, I have images of myself when I was nine years old. I had a Thor's hammer around my 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 neck. Right? It, it's a, a so when that symbol becomes associated with stuff like uh, white supremacy or militant white supremacy, then what what it really does is that it it's actually uh it's that clutters up the path uh out from euro modernity so if euro modernity is uh um, predicated on rejection of animist ways of knowing right so animism is the idea that there's subjectivity around us it's not only inside human human heads now that is an idea that in modernity has been very strongly rejected so ways of knowing and practice that that were predicated on that idea were, were rejected in european history but if we then move close to them again we come we come into association with stuff like white supremacy now that is almost like it's almost like an architecture of whiteness itself it's as if whiteness is bending in on itself like as if it's like a a, a kind of a, a meat eating plant or a kind of a, a a ball shape where you can't you're like a little you you're like a little mouse inside a in, inside a plastic ball you can't get out of it because if you come come close to these borders you you are actually moving close to uh militant stuff that any decent people wouldn't want to avoid right so that is a i think of that today as the defining paradox of whiteness we are almost excluded from challenging whiteness because the challenge to whiteness is associated with extreme whiteness it's like completely it's a clusterfuck right and and what can we do uh, and uh, yeah so and so that is the this double sided battle front that i'm talking about that and and the and that has roots all the way back in in colonial power languages where the the way that indigenous animist groups were uh, were denigrated on colonized con continents, that same language were also turned on Euro descendants themselves. So if you read folklore from like the 19th century, you'll see that they, they talk about uh, animist practices of, of their contemporaries as barbarous, infantile, and delusional. And th those ideas of animism as barbarous, infantile, and delusional, they're still being rehatched in, 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 in new forms. So uh, one amazing example of it was the global proliferation of this uh, image of the QAnon shaman. Why exactly that guy? He's a symbol of exactly what? Wasn't that actually kind of an evangelist revival movement almost? Why the flip is there this weirdly carnivalesque 
clownish figure that has sports hammers tattooed and some imitations of Native American headgear and all these kind of things. Why are these animist motifs being sort of su- in the in the global media sort of superimposed, made into a symbol of something that's in fact perhaps something completely different? Now that is because that upholds the uh, this rejection of animism, and I'm not saying that this is kind of a con- conscious decision. It isn't. A, this is just something that journalists do because they they intuitively feel that it appeals to pre-existing notions, right? So, uh, so stuff like eco-fascism is an incredible problem, not only because. Uh, eco-fascists are fascists and therefore morally abject and violent and whatnot. That's not a, that's not the entirety of the, the problem. Perhaps the main brunt of that problem is that by creating that thing, uh, eco-fascism, they actually exclude those, is it 600 million white people there is in the world? I'm not sure how many. There's a lot. Uh, they they secure they contribute to this structure of whiteness that seclude them inside modernity and thereby uh, also enforce these narratives that questioning modernity is somehow essentially fascist, which is complete nonsense. It's not, uh, you know, that would make any Inuit queer activist into an essential fascist. That's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. So, uh, so, I think the answer to that question is practice that that basically almost it doesn't ignore it doesn't close the eyes to that problem but practices very assertively something else. So when I have for instance been introducing a um a, an eco-totemic symbol from Euro traditional heritage that has we, we've redesigned it and introduced it, a raven flag. There's a raven uh, kinship culture that has been there in Northern Europe. Then I'm very actively engaging that this has to be counter, it has to run counter to eco-fascism. That's not something that I can just kind of put it out there and then assume that it'll probably not float in the right direct in the wrong directions because it totally might float in the wrong directions that yeah, and uh, so 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 that's a very active struggle that you can never ever really turn your back on and that's not because i wouldn't like to deal with something else i would like much more to be you know communicating on my channel about how to make sacred fire and you know ritual have ritual intercourse and uh, uh uh barley fields in order to produce sacred beer and all these kind of and you know all these kind of things that are much nicer and and um uh, and, and more interesting and which is also what but that is part of the uh, the history of racism and colonialism that we're all ingrained in. That these are not things you can turn your back on. I and I really appreciate you for not turning your back on it and really giving it your 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 really good look and analysis because it is such a tricky knot that we're entangled in. Because although we may begin to see pathways out of this mess and try to feel like we're getting to the core of some of these problems, the modern context 
uh, is so deeply interwoven with all of us and our world and our environments and the dams we put up and the electricity. You know, everything is so tricky that it's trying to get ourselves out of this maze. We keep sometimes finding ourselves at these dead ends that look like these these ways out. And it's it, I really love the way you describe it because I, I feel like we I'm always trying to emphasize that. Yes, we have these ideals and we know so many people who want to make the world a better place, but you always have to reference it with a modern context. Otherwise, you might make a, a worse knot for yourself. You might make a bigger mess. And it has to be this – there is no overnight fix to these things. It's this slow, deliberate looking at the problem. So I really appreciate appreciate the way you just described that. Yeah, I think that a lot of people and, – and, you know, and I think I'm guilty of this in my own ways is – you know, having this vision for the future that can kind of verge into the utopian and then we don't want to have to face that. How how can my ideas be weaponized in a way that maybe I don't agree with? And, you know, the, the I think the recognition of that there are people who are are weaponizing these sort of um, uh the, the the desire to connect with heritage in a way that reinforces white supremacy like that is inherently that is inherently it goes against everything that we're trying to stand for but still this the 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 fact that we talk a lot about you know the problems of globalization the problems of the of the the you know this food system the corporatocracy that we all live under is fundamentally a globalist system and yet you know and and and, and so there there's something that was sort of interesting that you had brought up and this is something that I had noticed too is like you know, this balance between um, uh, how much reverence and respect we have for cultures and wanting to make sure that the integrity of cultures gets to be maintained in this globalized system, you know, that it's not getting denuded by this dominant culture that sort of seeks to homogenize everything. But yet at the same time, this idea of cultural exchange and how important that is too. like this, we live in this very diverse globalized world and we can't, we can't escape and we shouldn't want to escape the multiculturalism because I think it's enriched all of us. Um, and so then there's this conflict that happens when there's these romantic ideals of um, traditionalists going back to like more traditionalist way of life that can sometimes get conflated with the fascistic and the the anti multiculturalism. And I don't think that it's I don't think that it's ever intentional in these people that we spend time with that are, you know, farmers and people who are wanting to live with the land. But sometimes that gets conflated. And so, um, you know, maybe if, if you're willing to talk a little bit about that, like, you you had spoken about just the 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 problem of demonizing cultural exchange and needing discernment um, as we are a global interconnected community of people um, that need to have respect for one another. Maybe you could speak a little bit about that. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, is I think it's an inc incredibly central debate that's ongoing. Uh, because it becomes a lever for what I call identitarianism. Uh, that, um, right, nationalisms, uh, in my work, nationalism is like the big beast in the apocalypse revelation often. However, nationalisms are sometimes very legitimate. When you have indigenous groups who are 
working to empower themselves, they often work with nationalisms. And that's a legitimate legitimate strategy because it, it is essentialism, um, identitarianisms that have tried to erase them. And so it's a necessity. Now, what I feel then sometimes happens today is that, that our um, uh, solidarity with these particular nationalisms mean that we then take nationalisms and then we move it up from being in solidarity with the Inuits to being a universal law of how hum humanity is supposed to function, and that is a problem. I think we should stay in uncompromising solidarity with the Inuits, but we should not move nationalism or identitarianism up to be this 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 law about how humanity is supposed to exist. And that is incredibly important. Now, I'm a little bit inspired in my way of thinking about this by the Australian Aboriginal author, uh, Tyson Juncker-Porter. And he has in his amazing book, Sand Talk, he has this uh, debate with a Native American theoretical physicist called Percy Pearl, where they apply the, the what they call the laws of thermodynamics as fundamental functionalities that, that can be used as metaphors to understand human ways of creating community creating culture and they what they make they make this beautiful analogy where they say there's the first law of thermodynamics which is that uh, everything's interconnected and always in transformation. And then there's the second law of, of thermodynamics, which says that systems have to be uh, isolated and closed. And inside these systems, things will decay. Uh, right. And what they basically say is that first peoples, indigenous peoples, they operate by the first law. And second peoples, which is the rest of us, the non-indigenous peoples, they operate by the second law of thermodynamics, which is also called entropy. Enclosedness that creates uh, decay. Now, identitarianism, like if we look at, no, let, let me roll back a little bit. When If we look at Western civilization, or the, 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 the Western history, Western cultural history, then entropic, Second law ways of thinking, focused on distinction make, making and uh, and closure, uh, they have been very very basic for our ways to think about human community, to think about uh, the world, to think about spirituality, to think about each other, to think about the very structure of reality. In so many ways, the enclose the, the the second law enclosement thinking. And uh, if you uh, and what what I think is basically going on when nationalism goes from being our solidarity with groups that we whose empowerment we want to support to be an, a universal uh, a universal law is that we are basically enforcing one of the deepest problem problems in how. Western cultural history has produced some of this world, and that is the entropic thinking. So if we listen to uh, Juncker Porter there in his dialogue with uh, Pearl, this Native American theoretical physicist, we should perhaps consider moving in the way, in, 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 in the direction of first law ways of, for instance, building relation between cultures, that culture are dynamic, changeable, 
relational systems rather than these boxes of enclosed homogeneity that are static and uh, look the same now as they looked 150 years ago and so on. So, yeah, and it it is it, sort of implied in this uh, in this observation that stuff like cultural exchange is extremely important, and it's extremely important to allow it, and it's dangerous to not allow it. Cultural exchange, like you guys, Americans, you 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 are you're part of a culture whose entire beauty and power and uh, perhaps also some of its atrocious sides and are fruit of uh, cultural uh, exchange, right? Uh, denying that or, or denying that to live to uh, is very dangerous thing to do. And that does not mean that we should not go on criticizing cultural appropriation when it actually occurs, because that does actually occur. And I think when we, if we look at the last 30 years of uh, uh, Western cultural history, then we actually also see that the cultural appropriation criticisms have had an incredibly beneficial impact on, for instance, how stories are told. If you look at uh, the Walt Disney uh, movie Aladdin from, I think it was from the early 90s, the way that Arabic culture is being portrayed in Aladdin I'm not sure if it's just bordering on racism or if it's just actually downright racist. Uh, but when you look at how uh, uh, Walt Disney are narrating their stories today, uh, in, in, for instance, a movie like Moana or Frozen, you see that they've grown up significantly. And that's probably not, be, not because they wanted to. That's because there have been a lot of aggressive anti-colonial voices who who you know uh have a go at them if they if they didn't so 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 i'm aware that it's it's a difficult issue to talk about and it's difficult to to sort of give a simple uh simple you know gu guiding lines for it i just think it is incredibly wrong incredibly wrong and in a very evident way, if we are making uh, non-entropic relational ways of being cultural, uh, being human, man, you know, make make that impossible in, in cultural practice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially since right now, when we think about the ecocide that has been ra ravaging the world in, you know, essentially the same way all over the world, we have to come together and find different languages and different knowledges and try to combine those things in order for us to have a more holistic understanding of what how, how big the problem actually is. Like we can't have this sort of top down, um, you know, uh, unified point of view of it. We actually have to be contextual and, you know, expand our horizons and expand our ability to engage with different cultural understandings of the crisis. And so, you know, I think I think it's it's really important to keep, to keep that in mind. Um, and, you know, just thinking about how, how do I want to say this? You know, one of the things that I have 
struggled with over the past few years and something that I would really love to be talking to you about right now is, you know, the European diaspora from my perspective, um, you know, we come to this project as two people who feel very uh, disenchanted and like we lack belonging in this like atomized culture that we now currently live in. And it's very hard to to know that our ancestors are buried somewhere on the other side of the ocean and that there are these animistic traditions that have been, you know, long, long ago been colonized and conquered and abandoned um, in order to come here and systematically erase the cultures and the animistic practices of the landscape that we're on. And... So there's this sort of, I think, schism that's happening with a lot of people in the European diaspora where it's like, how how can I engage with my ancestors? And also, how can I engage with the landscape that I'm on and the traditions that were brought up in this, this landscape without doing this cultural appropriation thing? Like, how can I have a respectful cultural <coughs> exchange while also feeling in many ways dislocated from you know, like like I, I've thought about it's like like what if I emigrated to Sweden? Like how how would I feel? Would I feel a sense of belonging there, or would I still feel as sort of weirdly detached as I feel in America? Um, so I just wonder, like, what what do you if people from European diasporas talk to you about reengaging with animistic traditions from Europe? How do you? How do you contextualize that and how do you sort of hold space for the complexity of that sort of situation? Yeah. Let me just think for a moment. Um, well, I, again, I think it's, it's, again, it's a very important question and it's, it's a question which uh, like, I, I don't think that I have, for instance, a final answer for how, for instance, to be in relation with uh, a uh, a land where you are a descendant of settlers. Um, but I think that the answer, when the, the the cultural processes that will produce that answer, will be incredibly important to basically uh, create a livable future for all of us. Because the thing is that most of humanity is in diaspora. There are not a lot of us who live in the same place as our great-grandparents. I, uh, I happen to do, but, uh, but there's actually quite a significant part of hu humanity which is in di diaspora. And humans are very mobile beings you know it's you know i'm not sure that you are necessarily supposed to feel disconnected in a land where your parent where your um, ancestors have been for 300 years i'm not sure you are i'm 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 just uh, are you <laughs> I, I don't know uh, and um and I think that with regards to relating to those lands, I think that the, uh, that some like in a perfect world, in a perfect world, you would be able to make a relating a creolization between 
stuff that comes from your own uh, European background and practices that relate specifically to that land there. Now, I actually speak to a lot of Euro descendants in uh, North America, for instance, who are sort of attracted to what I do. And many of them tell me stuff like, well, I'm actually in an, in an apprentice relation with an indigenous elder. Uh, and I've been in this relation for decades and I'm being told to do these and these things. I'm being told to put tobacco out on sacred stones and do these things. Why? Well, because that's the way that uh, that you relate to that landscape that's here. And I'm not saying this public, they often say. I'm not saying this in public because I know that there's a lot of your descendants who are engaging cultural exchange in morally bad ways, and I don't want to be associated with that. And also, the point of me doing it is not saying it in public. I mean, I'm not doing it to Instagram myself. I'm doing it to come into respectful relation with the land. Now, there's a little bit of a problem that this story, which I'm getting this story relatively frequently, um, and I think it's a little bit of a problem that we never hear that story because uh, we never we never told about your descendants who seem to be engaged. Like from my perspective here, I'm on the other side of the pond. Maybe I'm talking out of my arse. I don't know. But you know, from my perspective, it seems that they are engaging. Uh, traditional animisms of that land in very, very respectful ways. We're not really told. We're only told about told about the exploitative, appropriative mining of culture that uh, denatures uh, the use of white sage and splashes it all over TikTok in ways that are deeply disrespectful and carnivalizing and all that stuff. And I think that image also of what it is to be a Euro descendant is uh, very unfortunate. Not only is it probably uh, not not only is it factually wrong. I think it is probably morally wrong to 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 uphold that particular image of what it means to be a Euro descendant person. Uh, so, uh, but yeah. Just keep in mind that I am sitting on the other side of the Atlantic, and I'm not myself, you know, native to neither the per, the, the the situation of having been exposed to the abject, repugnant atrocities of colonization, nor being a descendant of settlers who have probably been perpetrators of these uh, these atrocities so 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 i'm a little bit like outside and i'm also i'm acutely aware that for instance when you speak to all you turtle islanders over there you all often get the feeling that these things are so uh so much defining for how people uh live their life and think about each other and talk to each other and uh and interact that that i mean i i I sense that it's a very different. These are very difficult things to say. Maybe I don't know. So, so if I'm if I if I'm a little bit like, do you say an elef- elephant in a porcelain shop here? That's how I feel right now. But but uh, but yeah. However, let me just give one little uh, recommendation. I have a good friend who's uh, Matthias Norvik, and he has a uh, started a little podcast called the sacred flame as if i remember correctly he lives in 
Colorado in uh, and teaches at a university over there. So uh, some associate professor of sorts. Um, and he is actually talking about uh, ancestrality as uh, in his la the latest uh, chapter of his podcast, he's talking about this coming into uh, ancestrality in relation relating with lands, uh, and also kind of he's criticizing, for instance, the uh, the blood descendant based ways of uh, of uh, thinking about, for instance, ancestrality, um, which actually is something you also sometimes find when you look at uh, at powerful animist systems like the Afro diasporic uh, uh, traditions that, that I've learned from. Y you find a lot of, for instance, groups where they're mostly black people, but the dead spirits that they invoke and they honor Native Americans. Then you also find groups where there are a lot of white people actually practicing these traditions in Brazil. In Brazil, a lot of white people are practicing traditional African religion. Um, and then they are perhaps worshiping African dead. I think the idea of the dead as other is important the dead as other and uh that means that that being in relation with with the dead is is uh perhaps not doesn't necessarily have to align perhaps for in, with identitarian categories like i descend from sweden so i will only think myself in relation to those dead from that place uh there is a an incredibly interesting uh, thinker. Uh, he's he's Burkina Bay, uh, meaning from uh, Burkina Faso. It's called Malidoma Somme. He's talking a lot about this relation with the dead and how that works, and how uh, and has he has been talking also to a lot of uh, Americans about it. Uh, about, and I rem remember him addressing the question: How how do I deal with ancestors that have committed atrocities? He, and he says, and he's like a complete shaman. He's like this Dalai Lama type dude. So he, he says, there's a mirroring function in the threshold between life and death. These ancestors that might uh, have perpetrated uh, cruelty. They might not, that might not be what they are as dead people. Perhaps they are now teachers that can, uh, that can guide people away from cruelty. Uh, and if you look at the Euro, uh, the Euro traditional um, uh, spiritualities, there are, there are uh, particularly the ideas of the dead are very, very similar, actually, to different African, both West African and West Central African uh, spiritualities. So you find that the European way of thinking called spiritism has had an incredible connective story with uh, uh, spiritualities such as Santeria and uh, Voodoo and uh, other uh, Orisha religions. Spiritism has really gone into uh, synergy with that stuff. And in spiritism, you find also this idea of the dead as other, 
is often like, yeah, it's it's Cleopatra or Napoleon or something, something like that. <clears throat> it's an other, right? And uh, and and the idea that they become guides of sorts. Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm not sure if that that sort of answered your question or made <laughs> made sense, but. Um, no, it's good. It's important because we talk about that a lot. You know, how much credence do we give to our biological ancestors? For me, it's what's more powerful, your your genetic ancestors or your cultural ancestors? You know, what stories were passed down to you that you still believe? You know, maybe it was the stories that the conquistadors were telling themselves that's the problem here. And are you still telling yourself that problem? Cool. Give yourself a break. You know, you're actively trying to engage with different stories and different ways of seeing the world. And I think that's far more important. I think that we're talking – that's why we, it's part of that reinforcing white thing you're talking about is we're, we're constrained and there's no, there's no pressure release valve for um, – a culture that doesn't know what it is, who it is, where it comes from, and where it should, what it should be doing, and so there needs to be that pressure release valve, and there needs to be a way out. Um, and I feel like people don't see that way out, and if they do, then they're um, it comes down on them hard. If that makes any sense. Yeah, or the people, people, you know, to go go back, it's like people see the way out of this sort of conundrum and this anxiety as you know resulting in you know going to a church and shooting up people under the banner of ecofascism or something like that. Like, and you know, this sort of something that I've thought about a lot is like um, that. And I think you you mentioned this. I forget which video you talked about it in, but you were like. It's undeniable that the majority of the havoc that's been wrecked upon the world has been done under the banner of whiteness. Like, however you want to describe that, if you want to describe that as industrial civilization, if you want to describe it as a story that has been kind of moving this colonial apparatus and creating capitalism and all these things, like, it's undeniable that there is this, like, European thread to it. And that's something that we have to contend with. Um, At the same time, I think that, you know, the healing of that... And the ability to to show up in today with a little bit of grace for the fact that we were born in this world that is really alienating to all of life on Earth um, is is important. That like that that the healing the healing of white people is deeply important, as is the healing of everybody. And if we can all have access to tools such as animism to start to feel like we belong here. That's the thing that I think about a lot is like, like what created the conditions for um, the American sort of like, just say that let's just focus on like agriculture, for example, the American way of agriculture was a plantation system, which had really been started by, you know, other European settlers, but, but was brought to America. And then it was concretized in America and exported to the rest of the world um, very, very early on in the story of colonialism. Um, And we have to acknowledge that maybe there was a moment or there was something about coming here and viewing the the, the European settlers viewing themselves as fundamentally so different than the, the inhabitants that were here and having to denude them of their personhood in order to justify colonizing them and, and genociding them to then basically depeople and the depopulate the landscape and commodify everything in order to then spread that sort of ideology outward. You know, like it sort of was like concretized and cemented in America. And that wound, I think, has led us to today where there's a whole population of people in, in the United States that don't feel like we belong here. We feel like this this land is like a resource to extract from. And 
that wound has to be healed because there's all these people and like where are we going to put them like where could where where do these people go we can't like we, people have to feel like they belong to the earth is kind of my diatribe about this yeah. <laughs> and it's like and how we do that is complex because i do think that it's it's a problem when people kind of claim indigeneity just because they were born on earth it's like no we do have to be respectful of the fact that there is a difference in being descended from settlers, but maybe the goal is indigeneity. Um, but being respectful of like what what weight that term has mm. is important. Totally. Uh, no, I think is a, these are good uh, considerations. I also think that that like um, like when you read uh, uh, indigenous authors. Uh, I recently uh, reread uh, Robin Kimmerer's um, uh, book there, uh, Braiding Sweet Grass. And the stories about the abuse of the Onondaga Lake, it is so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. I read some of Winona LaDuke's stories about pipelines being blasted through, uh, you know, pristine indigenous lands and these kind of things. I think the fact that this kind of shit is still going on today, that is probably an important factor making these things so difficult to talk about. Like, if if these people, like, if, if at least the last bits of their remaining uh, land rights, if at least that was not being very violently abused and still diminished, then perhaps it would be a little bit easier to talk about, you know, what does it mean to feel belonging in Turtle Island as a Euro descendant uh, uh, or settler descendant, right? You, you know what I'm saying? So, like, having... Ha like having very, very uncompromising, uh, for instance, contemporary respect for the autonomy and the uh, uh, self-determination of these these groups and supporting their social uh, their social processes to get through the uh, the situations that they're in. I think that would make it easier and more functional to to say, okay, so what does belonging mean for a white turtle islander? Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think a lot of people are trying to kind of avoid that like the the part of it that is the social justice part that is the the advocating for self-determination for uh, that that for people who are being oppressed i think a lot of people are trying to kind of avoid that and just just try to become like practice do, do indigenous practices without sort of like reckoning with that history and so i think that that's like that that's definitely important to, to us. Um, but I know it's late for you, so we don't want to keep you much longer, but um, I would really love if you feel that you have time to talk about Ragnarok and the year of Aun, if you have time. I know that's probably a really long topic, but... <laughs> yeah, let me try to give you a rundown on, the <laughs> on that thing. Well, yeah. Well, the Ragnarok is an ancient poem from uh from Scandinavia that talks about the collapse of uh of the world and from our perspective today i think the interesting part of it is that 
um, in the context of pre-Christian Nordic mythology, what is really collapsing is relatedness, connectivity between the forces of uh, order and the forces of chaos, the gods and the uh, giants in pre-Christian Nordic uh, mythology, that connectivity is really sort of the the driving force that makes stuff happen, that makes stuff flourish, that actually creates a harmonious world. That there is this, and these this connectivity is, can happen in so many ways, and it's not all kumbaya all the time. They also these agents also deceive each other and bind each other and enslave each other and have all kinds of contracts. And um, however, and they also make babies with each other and identify with each other and marry each other, but uh, exchange wisdom. But when all that system of connectivity collapses, then they start behaving like Christian angels and demons in this sort of total war. And that is the 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 end of the world. Is that when con- connectivity fails, the world basically collapses. Collapses, and you also see uh, human respect and kindness collapsing. So, uh, so some of these verses talking about, for instance, brothers killing each other, kinship has failed as this binding force that connect. Uh, and and this. Um, so that is the myth of the Ragnarok, and it's uh, recorded in in the most monumental way in a poem called the Völuspár, which means the prophecy of the Völva, which means a kind of a female shaman. Um, and uh, but the thing is that this I this experience of the proximity of uh, of loss of connectivity that is something that. Uh, traditional knowledge in Northern Europe is reflecting on all through the times that there are there is this uh, yeah reflection on how, for instance, human connect connection with the other than human, how it can fail, how it can, what are the consequences of that? How can it be recovered? How can how do we we relate to that in so many ways? And one of the uh, really monumental, very old stories about that is about King Aun, the old of Sweden, who murders his own children in order to live forever. It's a really gruesome story. It's a little bit like Kronos eating his own children in, in Greek mythology. Now, that compromising of connectivity, uh, is. it seems that it's almost like an idea of disconnect happening sort of cyclically and then we have to cyclically call connectivity back into being because Aun's murder of nine children those nine uh, human sacrifices in this myth it's a myth right they outline the cycle with which uh, people used to gather for these grand festivals and um in, in, in the medieval chronicles where these grand festivals are described, uh, it is said that people did that in order to realign themselves or get uh, get forgiveness from the spirits in the earth or something like that. So it's a Christian formulation, forgiveness. However, these kind of gatherings where people gather with long time in between the Jubilee years in the Judeo-Christian traditions or the Kumela celebrations in India, they often have this aspect of like going back to to ground to 
not ground zero, but going back to basics, getting all the the kind of a purification. So, um, yeah, cool. So, so these celebrations were held with eight years in between, and what uh, what we figured out and basically called for is that these celebrations might very well have been timed by the fact that the new moon and the <laughs> the winter solstice sometimes coincide now when that happens that basically means that the lunar or the solar year aligns they begin in the same at the same approximate time and that alignment happens with an 8 year interval it happens a little bit more often than that but it also happens with an 8 year inf- interval so and it happened here in the beginning of 2023 so throughout 2022 uh, a lot of people in the animist sort of paganist hippie spaces and uh, we've been sort of calling to for for the celebration uh, of the year of Aun, basically a healing celebration that should be a call to um, put a spot on those pathological patterns of rupture and camouflaged violence on which our uh, system is predicated, because our system is in a sense like Aun, the old king who's eating his own children. We're eating the planet away under the feet of our own children. And in the myth Aun, he becomes more and more sort of decrepit and enabled, enabled, disabled. At the end, he's just lying immobile in his bed and eating out of a baby bottle. It's like the Matrix you know, humans who are lying in these kind of cocoons, just feeding out of other humans through tubes. It's it, that is an image of how our our uh, consumer civilization works: cannibals eating our own children. This, by the way, is also a you could say this is a Euro traditional perspective on the uh, what. Uh, Robin Kimmerer and, by the way, also Winona LaDuke, these Native American writers, when they talk about the Wendigo, these cannibal monsters, as uh, as this uh, image of the consumer system. So uh, we've been trying to call, basically, for the, the Aun celebration here in 2023 to basically uh, put out a global, uh, a global call that we should have, you know, recurrent grand festivals where we call for the healing of the decrepit violence that is uh, invisible uh, beneath our system, basically. Fantastic, it's, yeah. It's really cool. I, I just really like the way that you have it described on your website because I think that there is a like an sort of alchemical catharsis to it, like the way that you describe it as like we are own, like we are like we're perpetuating this story and we're continuing. And I, I like how you end it with, you know, we're the worst imaginable ancestors. <laughs> and, you know, I, I do think that um, I, I think I think is a really beautiful it's it's a really beautiful way to bring in mythology into our day to day and understand that these stories from the past have so much significance to today. We want to try to yeah. pretend like they don't, but they do. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes these kind of stories, it is as if they are there as a deep reality that 
that produce narratives around us, like or produce, like for instance, the, this Aum story. That is a that that's a deep pattern, right story. But take a take a look at something like the QAnon mythology. What is that a mythology about? Like that is an absolutely crazy idea that Hillary Clinton is the kingpin of some <laughs> the global cannibal sex cult or something like that is absolutely insane, right? But the idea, the foundational idea, is something about power being predicated on violence and children. That is actually. It actually almost seems like the QAnon mythology has. It, it's kind of an own myth that has just fallen off the rails. And I think that is an image of the potential healing that you're talking about, man. That 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 if if uh, these kind of stories, they can they can bring in something like that, something as completely decrepit and toxic as. QAnon mythology can actually be realigned into a into a, a healthy healing process by the power of Euro traditional, uh, uh, basically story and and culture. Wow, powerful. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, maybe that's a it's a good place to end on. Yeah, it's a good. Uh, message unless you well, had something you... I, I i was just gonna add on that it's like it's something that's interesting for us to think about is like um uh you know and i don't know if i have a definitive answer or thesis about this but just what you're saying makes me think of that if we if we can maybe view conspiracy theories mythologically at times maybe they offer a sort of symbology that actually does have a lot of resonance it's a reflection it's it's a like a psychological reflection um past all the details, the essence of it is trying to say something really important about the zeitgeist of the culture, how the culture feels and what it needs to say and what it's thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think also, um, you know, I just want to say I really appreciate being able to talk to you because you clearly have such a breadth of knowledge about history of mythology and religion. And I think that, you know, I, I'm a student of astrology, so I spend a lot of time engaging with mythology in that in the sort of like Hellenistic tradition, but also I try to kind of expand it to other things as well because um, there's a lot of crossover um, between cultures. But um, I find mythology and trying to bring mythology into the present and use mythological a mythological lens to understand our current world um, is not only a deeply human thing. Um, but it really, really provides us a lot of context. You know, if, if you didn't if you didn't bring this story in, you know, then we don't have uh, an accurate frame. Like that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about living in this time is we have so much access to all of the history of the world that we can learn about. And I just think it's like incumbent upon us to really engage with that history. So so th thank you for bringing your knowledge to us. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks. Actually, let me just have a comment on this whole thing with conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories from an animist perspective, that's actually a really interesting issue because you know how, how the, the, the modern perspective of the world secludes personhood and intention and subjectivity inside human brains, inside human minds, right? It's not out there. The coronavirus doesn't have any intention and subjectivity in the modern perception, right? Now, when the smallpox virus came to West Africa in the mid-19th century, 
what people immediately did was that they, because they had a functional animist perception of the world, they read the smallpox virus as a deity, as a, a an other than human, and their <clears throat> that mythology enabled them to engage the smallpox virus, smallpox virus, and to and this deity is still worshipped today. By the way, a deity was born in this uh, event in northern India during the coronavirus. They started engaging the coronavirus as uh, Corona Devi, a goddess that uh, that they built relation with. But we, rationalist modern people, we have been excluding from this ca- capacity of reading per- personhood and subjectivity in the world. So what do we do? We kind of, we know because we are, in, in a sense, we're animists deep down, we know that there has to be intention and subjectivity in stuff that happens in the world, because there is. Um, so we kind of our mythology sort of falls off the rails and then we start spinning narratives about human agents whose interests and intentions and subjectivities motivated stuff like the COVID. And then we have these stories about it was Bill Gates who made the whole thing happen. Now, in a sense, this conspiracy theory uh, could perhaps be dissected as an attempt at an at an animist analysis of what happened. What happened with COVID? Well, big tech companies certainly made a lot of money on it. What is a symbol of big tech companies? Well, Bill Gates. So it's almost as as if the animist sort of reflection is saying Bill Gates's subjectivity, Bill Gates as almost as an other than human or as a spirit, uh, Bill Gates almost becomes a spirit that is, is, in a sense, inhabiting and motivating what's happening, right? So there is a a node, I think, of animist culture criticism that goes on in conspiracy theories. The problem is just that this, uh, that it's, it, it, it's, it's faulty, it's uh, predominantly... <laughs> My impression is a predominantly faulty analysis. It's actually not Bill Gates, who sat down and made some elaborate, impossible plot in order to implant, you know, I don't know, chips in all of us and these kind of things. But there is this sort of animist, um, and and this is again, it's 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 an example of how. Uh, animist thinking might be able to heal unfortunate patterns in how we engage the world. If we could think in competent animist ways about stuff like the COVID pandemic, then it wouldn't fall into these crazy ideas. It would, it, 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 I imagine that it, it would stay in, in more functional he- healing narratives. Yeah. Well, this, you know, you describing the fact that the coronavirus was deified from this animist perspective, almost it's like there's a level of acceptance, you know, and this is something we said throughout the pandemic where there seemed to be this ambient thing that one day Corona will be gone. It's just we're running and we're going to escape it and then it'll be done. And it's like, 
No, it's here. It's here forever, actually. It's not going anywhere. And we have to approach the way we see this problem as uh, uh, it is now part of our reality, whether we like it or not. And we have to have a relationship with it. It doesn't have to be good. It can still be kind of an asshole, but we do have to relate to it. We do have to know how to communicate with it in a certain regard. And I, that's why I like uh, an animist approach to things because it, it, it does, in a sense, accept things as they are. It accepts the world as it is. It accepts death. It's not trying to stop death or abate death, it accepts it and has a re- and and allows for a relationship that uh, informs you. The the I I find great resolve in my own life of trying to define if there were any laws that the that most of life behaves under, and the the quicker you can get uh, okay with those laws and those fundamentals that are always going to be there the sooner we can learn how to be in this world and how to relate to it because we know the non-negotiables. You know, nature, yeah. if, if you want to personify nature, uh, is wonderful and, fruit, uh, you know, provides bounty and all the things we need. But she's also has some really strict laws and rules and she will uphold those rules. And that's beautiful and that's amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just interesting to to think about, you know, Bill Gates as as sort of like this demon um this because he is sort of like per- perceived as a demon in a lot of ways and and I don't think that he has perfect intentions I think that he does there there are some things that he's doing that I really disagree with but um it is interesting that he has become um this sort of emblem for um mistrust and then you know this uh, the idea of like our minds being colonized by the chips by 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 Bill Gates chips it's like that sort of story it's like What's at, what it's kind of pointing to is what it what has actually already happened with things yeah. like social media and like the corporatocra- corporatization of the world and stuff. So it's like it's it's like a mythology it's a image. Yeah, yeah, exactly. that's that's actually exactly. expressing like what has yeah. already happened. So that's yeah. actually quite interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, cool. thank you so much. I feel like we should chat again because I feel like there's so many things we could talk about and so many things that can be seen through this lens of animism and I think it's a conversation that needs to continue and we just we love conversations like this so thank you and I we really appreciate cool. well, you well thanks for having me yeah, and where, uh, yeah definitely yeah. let's have another chat another time <laughs> where can people find you and, and uh, connect with you well you can find me on uh, Nordic Animism on uh, all kinds of different social media <laughs> and particularly YouTube um, my, the kind of the, the the main thing I have is a YouTube channel where I share reflections on this stuff. Fantastic. Yeah. And we'll link to everything in the bio for, yeah. the, for the podcast. Thanks. Smile.
jāvrīt sāmā, enords tirdēj raldrēj, heimers ir gūdan ietu. Deir fiedēja frendur, deir šalvrīt sāmā, iegveitēj nāraldrēj, Du mürm dei dann